Welcome to Career and Ruins, where this episode is brought to you courtesy of the Council for British Archaeology. The Council for British Archaeology? Isn't that that charity that works to involve people in archaeology and speaks up to protect the UK's archaeological heritage? That's the one. They also look to inspire the next generation through the Young Archaeologists Club, or YAC for short. And this is the only UK-wide club where 8- to 16-year-olds can participate in real archaeology. And haven't they coordinated over a thousand events this summer as part of their Festival of Archaeology? That's the one. So to join the Council for British Archaeology, it's only £40 for the year, or £25 as a, if you're a student. And as part of that membership, you receive six whole editions of the British Archaeology magazine a year that come straight to your door, and that also includes a number of discounts and offers. Wowzers! So how do we find out more? All you've got to do is go to their website, archaeologyuk.org, or follow them on at archaeologyuk on all the social medias. Social media, like Facebook? Yep. Twitter? Mm-hmm. Instagram? Yeah. MySpace? No. Welcome back, everyone, to Career and Ruins, um, our new series, season two, with me, Derek Pittman. And me, Lawrence Shaw. Oh, it's good to be back, mate. It's great. It's, it's been a good little break. It feels like ages since we sat in this little booth together. <laughs> As it, the sign of the times is we're always moaning about how hot it is in the booth. Yeah. It's, it's relatively fresh. I'm pretty grateful to be in here now, after <laughs> yeah. stepping in through the frosted side. <laughs> oh, it's great to be back, though. So what have you been up to since we, we finished? Much the same, really. Lots going on. Lots of heritage management. I've been doing a lot of work around... Racken management. And that sounds awful. Of... <laughs> 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 monuments at risk, making sure they're in good condition and how bracken can uh, affect these monuments, but mm. also loads of other things, surveys, geophysics, uh, work with community groups. I was out only this weekend looking at Neolithic Longborough with the Avon Valley Archaeology Society. Nice. Um, so yeah, I cannot complain at all. So how did they find that Longborough? They did some work with a, a group or a, an initiative called Locate, mm. um, which looks to provide geophysical equipment for local archaeology groups. And um, they sort of did a bit of map regression. And it's all entirely off their own back. It's amazing, really. Oh, they nice. did some map regression, some documentary research, and they found this mound, or barrow coppice, it's called. It's this <laughs> lovely mound, long mound, drawn in the, the coppice. And um, just prior, or just during the Second World War, the RAF flattened the mound and flattened the area and turned it into a oh, uh, wow. temporary airfield for D-Day. Yeah. Um, and they'd done all this map regression, worked out where it should be, used this geophysical equipment and found the most beautiful anomaly that looks just like a Neolithic long barrow. So they just started last week peeling back the earth to see what they might oh, have. Oh, wow, so is what I stuck my nose in and went, got very excited and some nice Bronze Age oh, uh, flints in the upper layers. Geez. So it's looking positive. But oh, I'm so jealous. I'm going to have to come and visit. Yeah, do so. It sounds do amazing. So. How about you? Oh, I've had a busy few months. It's uh, I, I've got a, a promotion at work. Congratulations. Nice. Deputy head of department Gift over here. The hood up. That sounds like <laughs> a lot more work. <laughs> um, I've been, just got back from Spain, two weeks in Spain, which uh -huh. has been excellent doing some survey work. Is that with the Madna Azahara project? It is, yeah. yeah. So it's been, the project's been going for quite a few years now. We've been mapping a 9th or 10th century um, Islamic city site, which has got a really interesting history because it's so often in archaeology when you have urbanisation, people tend to build on top of it and you get layer upon layer. But this was a, a strange quirk that one, one of the rulers in the region decided, OK, I'm going to build my own palace and city. 
lived there for a generation, another generation, and then it collapsed and right. the, the city moved to somewhere else again. Mm -hmm. So it's this sort of time capsule just preserved in time without very much on top of it. So you get a really nice, um, using survey and remote sensing, you get a really nice plan of the layout of the city as it was oh. a thousand years ago. It's Lovely. incredible. So that's near Cord Cordoba? It is, yeah, mm. in, in southern Spain, in mm. Andalus. It's, it's an amazing place to work. and. Uh, I'm somewhat shattered from it. We 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 drove down and drove back, so we had an epic road trip and a boat ride. So it's a front knowing line you fairly well. I'm sure you enjoyed those ferry trips. <laughs> <laughs> I was not sick at all. That's a lie. <laughs> oh, that's good. But a good summer otherwise. Yeah, really. Hey, good. we were making cider only a few months back. I know, I know, and it's still bubbling away in my yeah. spare room. Oh, we need to tap to into that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Just in time for Christmas parties. Hey. <laughs> I guess before we move forward with today's podcast, we should let new listeners know what Career in Ruins is all about. We should, yeah, because we kind of, we sit here in this booth every week and we assume everyone knows what we're going on about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Career in Ruins is, it's, it's a project that you and I have been thinking about for a while now and it's all about giving a glimpse of our world, really, the world of being an archaeologist, the world of working in archaeology and sort of being on the front line of discovering the past, really. Yeah. Uh, and I hope, hopefully we're looking to make it slightly more accessible. So we're, we're not your bog average slightly dry archaeological approach. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we laugh a lot. We apologise for that in advance. Yeah. But um, we, we're looking to try and bring in interesting professionals from across the spectrum in archaeology um, and share how they got into their career, some of the more interesting things they've done, some of the more interesting things they've spotted whilst mm. they've been in their career. Hopefully give a bit of advice for people going forwards. I think that's one of the things I enjoy most about doing this podcast is when you look at archaeology on TV, you see people digging holes, mm -hmm. you see the very front line of excavation. But the discovery process in archaeology goes far beyond that beginning first step into various post-excavation systems and various specialisms and individuals who do very interesting work but tend not to get that same sort of frontline publicity, I guess. So it's really nice to give a bit of a window to that world that's it and make it more yeah, accessible i think mm. is the thing isn't it like these professors that we get in or leading professionals they're just nice normal human beings who yeah. work blooming hard to get where they are but they've got a really interesting story as to how they've got there and um hopefully we're gonna this season's gonna bring even more of that yeah and we've got a lot of interesting stories coming up so this episode we're talking to richard osgood who we'll, we'll introduce in a moment but we've got an exciting episode coming up next week what have we got coming lawrence next week we've got the pleasure of going to the day of archaeology with the council for british archaeology so we're going up to their agm um, and that's going to be in, involve a trip around the Mithraeum Museum. Have you been there before? I haven't. I'm really excited about taking Career and Ruins on the road. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. So I went there last year. I took mm. my parents, actually. It was fantastic. Brilliant free attraction for a trip up to London as well. Hey, so well excellent. worth it. Um, and then we get to listen to the Ducardi lecture um, mm -hmm. by Richard Osgood as well. And uh, we get to meet and chat to some of the winners of the Marsh Awards as well. That's right, we're going to be talking to a lot of interesting people in the next episode and I can't wait to catch up with them and get to know them all and give them the uh, career in ruins treatment. That's <laughs> <laughs> but I guess we should move on with this week's episode. That's right, you've been talking to Richard Osgood who is currently the Senior Historic Advisor for the Ministry of Defence. A really interesting character, he's Archaeologist of the Year, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. As um, you do, as you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why not? 
<laughs> what, a, what a great interviewee for our first episode yes. back, eh? Um, and he's massively involved in Operation Nightingale, which is this incredible project that it's a military initiative uh, developed to use archaeology as a means of aiding the recovery of service personnel injured in recent conflicts, mm-hmm. so particularly Afghanistan. And it gives, gives um, injured service people a chance to partake in archaeological practice and we've talked about it in series one and it's worth going back to listen to those episodes that elements of archaeology do have quite a curative effect or can have a curative effect on um, physical illnesses um, mental illnesses that can really help sort of bring out positive feelings and positivity and i think operation nightingale is was one of the leading projects in developing archaeology as a tool for health mm-hmm. which is incredible so it's i'm really looking forward to hearing this interview. no he's, he's a great guy really interesting and um he chose a really good location which you'll get straight at the start of the interview but uh, as a result i should say that the sound quality changes halfway through <laughs> and this is because we're having a really good chat under a nice covered area of a beer garden uh, as you do <laughs> and then it was around the time of the end of day so a large group of ladies came in and started having their catch-up in the table next to us and we had to move stayed in the beer garden it started raining on us <laughs> so there might be a bit of sound change halfway through but i don't think it subtracts from the interview and he's, he's a top top guy so i think we should just crack on and hear what he's got yeah, to let's say let's get cracking richard thank you for joining me today on the, uh, the pleasure podcast. um I should start by saying you've probably chosen one of the coolest locations for uh, one of the interviews. This is perfect interview territory, this one. (laughs) So it's the Black Boy Pub in Winchester, but it's like a a box of delights. I don't quite know how to describe it. The most eclectic place on the planet. You go in there, it's one of the few places you can drink surrounded by an elephant's leg or a baboon in a kilt pushing (laughs) a shopping trolley. It's not your everyday experience, but it's a perfect place to drink. I was very happy when I uh, looked at where you suggested, so thank you there. But yeah, thank you for giving up your time today. Lovely. Um, We we tend to start start the podcast by asking people to give us a bit of a background as to how they got to where they are today. So where you started from, what got you interested in archaeology in the first place, um, how you progressed for your career and, and second. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the really annoying people that probably knew as a kid exactly what they wanted to do. Yeah. I'm going through this with my daughter at the moment. She sort of thinks, you know, she wants to be a vet, but um, okay. I mean, she'll have to work hard and, you know, even if she doesn't, she might get some GCSEs out of it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so at the age of 11, um, I grew up in, in Wiltshire in a town called Bradford-on-Avon, so absolutely ran with archaeology, Saxon church, Tide Barn, um, and a really grim thing called the fun run. You know, anything in sport that gets called fun. It's like democratic <laughs> in a kind of title, isn't it? It just means it isn't going to be. So you did this thing called the fun run. And um, <laughs> this cross-country route. And a few of us who weren't... You know, I was reasonably sporty. I played a lot of rugby and football. But running, not my thing. Mm. So we'd work out there was a shortcut you could take across the farmer's Excellent. field. But you didn't want to take it too quickly because you'd get back first and that... They'd you know, start asking yeah, questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it would, would not look realistic. <laughs> so you'd hang around on this farmer's field. And as we were doing, just waiting around, killing time, you could sort of see things, and there would be bits of oyster shell. Right. And you find bits of what we now know as pottery and <laughs> ceramics and stuff, and thought, well, there's so, clearly something here. Yeah. So we formed a little archaeology club, which we'd go out weekends and do stuff. And it was before the sort of days of the national curriculum, so you could do this thing called local studies, which is a brilliant course. And we had a really inspirational teacher, Mr. Sullivan, still remember his name. Right. And uh, we'd go out, and he would take us to Avebury or West Kennet Longbarrow, oh, wow. or Devizes Museum. It's all things that, you know, if that doesn't inspire you, then clearly archaeology isn't for you. Yeah. And many years after, 
many years after we did the, uh, um, when I left school, they actually found there was a Roman villa under the football pitch oh, wow. so just by, and chap called well, Mark Corney excavated it. Oh, yeah, it was, a, yeah, it was yeah. a lovely mosaic with dolphins on. Really great stuff. Nice. So really, really fantastic location. So from the age of eleven, I thought I've really enjoyed doing this. So I did it at uni. Mm -hmm. And well, which uni did you? Well, I pick? started off at, at University of Wales or Ampeter, which was sadly the department I think is struggling a wee bit at the moment, yeah, but okay. it, it was. Brilliant, lots mm -hmm. of uh, lecturers on their first jobs, people like uh, the brilliant Julian Thomas and Martin Bell and okay. Chris Tilley and some, oh, just, yeah. just some amazing names Norman of British archaeology. It was just, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> really cool place to go. And then I, I did, did a postgrad at Oxford, but towards the end of my Lampeter course, I thought, you know what, you can actually do this as a job. You can, well, you can get paid to an extent yeah, yeah. for doing this. Nice. And so I just went from there and I've been lucky enough to be employed in archaeology since since those heady days of the late 1980s oh. um, and I've, I've stayed in archaeology since and so from the age of 11 you wanted to do it and I, I'm still doing it now and I still really love it I, I think archaeology uh, you know anyone who's listening probably has that feeling that archaeology you can get employed you're never going to become a millionaire really yeah. mm. but I have been lucky enough to not have a Monday morning when I think oh, yeah. it's work. Well, that's a really valid point. It is great. I hope my bosses are listening to this, <laughs> but still need, I still need to be paid. Yeah. It's not, when does when, that when million pound arrive? Will you do it for free? But, um, <laughs> but yeah, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a really, really great thing. That Monday morning, I don't, I don't feel it's work, and I really love archaeology. And you do meet some lovely people. Mm. You get to some great places, um, and you still get that thrill, that, that discovery moment that it's what gets you into archaeology, that finding thing. Now, even if I'm not doing the finding, if somebody I'm working with does the finding and see that thrill... Um, you get a sort of, um, you get a, a kind of sort of associated thrill yeah, of find absolutely. with it all. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a really good feeling. So what was your first job out of university in archaeology? Uh, my first, this is going to sound so pretentious. My, <laughs> my first job in archaeology was uh, research assistant to Professor Barry Gunn. Oh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds yeah, utterly they, pretentious. They hand those out to a penny, I Yeah, think. exactly, yeah, so it's ridiculous. <laughs> it was just, I slipped into that, really. I did, a, I did a thing after I finished my undergraduate, before I did my postgrad, I did a thing called the one year, it was a in-service course in archaeology and it used to be run between the Oxford Archaeology Unit and Oxford University Department of Continuing Education mm -hmm. and that was four three-month placements in industry right. so some with English Heritage as was okay. three months with them three months with the Oxford Unit three months with historic uh, who else was it uh, I forget now uh, Warwick Museum oh wow and a couple of, so it was just yeah, yeah. places of that and then the last of those was with the University Department of Archaeology with Barry mm -hmm. and I'd obviously managed to con him or something like that because his, his research assistant post was up for grabs at the end of it all and he said probably rather than having to go through the rigmarole of interviewing he just said well do you want to do Come this? Come on down. So what was that. it you were looking at? Uh, to start with it was all the Danbury post excavations. So that's a big just, Roman. Oh, no, it's the Iron Age Hill Fort down in Hampshire and this was Danbury volume six so I ended up seeing loads of pit alignments and spatial oh, patterning of various ceramic phases I can still in my nightmares, still wake up thinking those all <laughs> Roman nail reports, all this sort of Manning types. And, Sounds uh, good. Yeah, somebody has to do, and it was me in this instance. Uh, so I did that for um, for best part of ten years in the end. Wow. Um, wow. And Barry always got brilliant sights, and I don't know, he used to go and dig in Larry Ocher, very very canny move all over Brittany, and <laughs> largely ran the Danbury region. That's why I love this region that I live in now. I live in Winchester now, and um, this area is completely beautiful you've got the test valley and mm -hmm. um this area of hampshire is, is magical and the sites are phenomenal and digging on chalk is nice yeah it is nice yeah. it's a good geology so <laughs> so growing up doing that was was brilliant so that that was the first job i did in archaeology i've only ever done three i was going to say proper jobs in archaeology but I, I think some of those would be people would debate those are three jobs in archaeology it was 
first of all working for Barry, did that for about 10 years. Then I got a lottery funded job for four years, wow. which was uh, archaeology promotion officer. It's in South Gloucestershire Council in Kingswood, the edges of Bristol, and it was promoting um, archaeology to communities that quite often don't Weren't do archaeology. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know, the sorts of things we're all interested in. Yeah, um, working with with school children, with old kind of communities in the old industrial and mining regions, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's quite a diverse area, South Gloucestershire, because you've got the Cotswolds, relatively affluent, mm -hmm. um, but it goes right down to. Um, the old mining areas and the non-conformist areas and that's see all these tin chapels everywhere that uh, um, people like John Wesley put up because they found it quite a curiously godless area I think the quote okay. was. So, so there's some quite hard customers nice. there yeah, but yeah, yeah. great place to be so I did that for four years and then um, since 2004 I've worked for the Ministry of Defence. Oh well. I just love okay. that. I love it. And so you're based in? Based on Salisbury Plain. Mm -hmm. I'm based within a very, very small distance of Stonehenge. I drive past Stonehenge every day on the way to work when the traffic's moving. Nice, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, again, as, as an archaeologist, drive past Stonehenge every day. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And then you get to the training area, and on the training area, just Salisbury Plain has 300 and, uh, 307, I think it is, current tally of scheduled monuments. Wow. Parts of the World so Heritage. So it's nationally protected. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just magical. And you get these unusual challenges of making sure that we facilitate all the military training that you know the nation requires us to do but at the same time not damage the archaeology and it's you know it's a it's a fairly good relationship we have with the military and I think the lessons of working with the military and what damage might occur were fought many years before mm. I went there so again slipped into quite a nice easy job. So I guess with, with, with that many nationally important monuments in your in your remit under your under your protection what what's the spread like what what's the earliest most dramatic site versus some of the more later well it's it's MOD wide, we used to, we used to have quite a almost had the gamut of them really because we used to have a, a Neanderthal cave in right. Gibraltar which was oh, of course yeah brilliant wow. World Heritage site that's no longer any MOD influence on that one so the the earliest stuff we really have in and certainly on Salisbury Plain is the sort of the Neolithic sites you've got a lot of the earth and long barrows got twenty seven of those so mm -hmm. sort of earlier Neolithic couple of causewood enclosures as well okay. um, the famous Robin Hood's Ball yeah. um, on the mm -hmm. edges of the World Heritage site that's one of ours and they go right up to monuments of the Cold War. Um, we've got Spade Adam, the Blue Missile, wow. the Blue Streak Missile silos mm -hmm. um, on, the, on the training areas. A lot of First World practice changes. I guess lots of the things that the MOD do are by their very nature unique mm -hmm. and therefore liable for designation. So hangars, practice trenches, all this sort of stuff. And with the real focus on the First War commemoration that's just we've just all gone through, mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of First War archaeology. Not surprisingly. Uh, one thing I like to say, so being based in the New Forest, I like to say the, the role of William the Conqueror or the creation of the New Forest National Park has made mm. a bit of a time capsule in that landscape, and yep. there, there's been minimal impact on those, those landscape features, so yep. minimal development, minimal agricultural impact. I think it's pretty fair to say that Salisbury Plain in particular, but also a lot of MOD land is yeah. exactly the I, same. I, you're quite right. It's exactly that, and I, I do exactly the same on my talks. Yeah. <laughs> um, MOD first started buying land on Salisbury Plain in 1897, so we prevented those industrial ploughing components that can be really quite damaging. We don't really have many road schemes or housing schemes, and I was saying to you earlier when we got the pints in that uh, actually having um, metal detecting on a training area is kind of a foolhardy <laughs> operation. Darwinism, <laughs> Yeah, a lot of quite dangerous use, yeah. stuff there. So, so it is protected, and you can read the landscape as a text. So you can walk along a Bronze Age linear ditch that cuts through what we call Celtic fields, mm -hmm. and then skirts around an earlier long barren. You can just, you know, the most, you know, the most wet behind the ear student can go there and see. Ah, look, well, that's got to be earlier than that because it respects it. All these sorts of things, and uh, really, really nice to 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 have um, on the training area. So yeah, it's a military. 
presence has been a, a fortunate way of protecting archaeology. It wasn't deliberate, but mm. it has, has gone there. And we, one of the, the lovely monuments we've got on the training area is a thing called the inscribed stone. It's a big, I suppose, equivalent to a gibbet in many ways, a big monolith. It's a, <laughs> it's a big monolith. It's a bit like a, it's a sarsen stone with this plate on it commemorating where Benjamin Colclough and three companions in iniquity right. um, set upon Mr. Dean at the village of Imber and take a load of money off him. Oh, yeah. And one of the guys, Mr. Colclough, falls down dead. Ooh. See, management of the media is nothing new. He just falls down <laughs> dead at this spot. And this big stone is paid for by public subscription as a, as a warning to others that might contemplate it at this spot. And it's, you know, it is like a gibbet. Yeah. But that, for me, is my sort of equivalent of that Thomas Hardy moment of this wild, inhospitable part of West. Six. Mm -hmm. You just think of Tess at, at Stonehenge being, you know, captured, and it is a hostile, threatening landscape. That's why it's in there, and it must have been like that. And so few bits in southern Britain, I guess, the, the forest has got bits of it like yeah. that that are are unspoiled like mm -hmm. that. That you can have still this feel of being in the, being in the wilds. I guess Dartmoor and yeah. some of the other training areas, well, Otterburn, Brecon Beacons, <laughs> yeah. all those sorts of feels to it. Um, but I, I, I love that. I love that feel of feeling of threat's probably the wrong word, but that sort of unspoiled and you you could I think you could put somebody from the Bronze Age potentially in this landscape and they'd recognize bits of the topography and okay. I, I love that. Nice. I love that. Older mate, I've got to stop that interview there. There's so much to talk about already. I notice you're still in the same place though. Yeah, we haven't moved yet, but uh, it's coming. Yeah, <laughs> should, we, should we have a bit of a chat about that so far? Because there's so many, so many, so many interesting components to this. Already interview so, so interesting. What a legend! I mean, what a guy! I can see why he's archaeologist of the year. I mean, that love of archaeology is clear, and particularly on Monday morning, not feeling like you're going to work. I mean, I suppose we both work in archaeology. But our jobs also cross over with other elements as well. So some Mondays, I must admit, I wake up and think, oh, <laughs> oh you're another, in the wrong job, mate. Not another departmental meeting. I'm in the same meeting. boat in <laughs> <laughs> oh, it love, love every Monday for you, yeah. Oh, I'm in the wrong job. <laughs> but it sounds great, and it, that, that passion comes across, I mean, from an earlier stage. And I love, I love that someone's love of archaeology could come from basically taking a shortcut in a run, which, actually thinking about it and referring back to our first season, that just makes him a natural orienteer, I think. Yeah, true. <laughs> he's, very true. He's He's already looking for the shortest way between two points. Yeah. And enjoying the, the archaeology in between. Exactly, it's perfect. One of us. <laughs> one one takeaway from that that I took is the, the role of inspiring individuals as a youngster. Yeah. And yeah. his great teacher that he had at the time. And organisations such as the Young, Young Archaeologists Club. That well, yeah, these people yeah. give up their free time to inspire and educate and inform the next generation of archaeologists. It's so important. I, I think you're right. And I mean, I look around at our discipline and... We're not perhaps on TV as much as we once were. There's no more Indiana Jones films at the moment, although I think there's one Thank coming. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, having people sort of actively out there inspiring children to think about our subject and fall in love with it from an early age, it's clear that if, if the bug bites you then, it, it stays with you for life. And mm. you get people like Richard. Yeah. Well, when you just said we're not on TV anymore and there's an Indiana Jones film coming, I just thought maybe that's how we get our millions. Oh. Richard talks about us not becoming millionaires. And I thought you actually meant we're not on TV anymore. Yeah. I don't remember the last time I was on television. <laughs> Um, so, for those of us that aren't aware, can can you give us a bit of a background on Barry Cunliffe? He chats a lot about 
working for him, and I, yeah, he's kind of a big deal. See, Barry Cunliffe is one of those names that has haunted my entire career. Um, he he is such a huge figure in archaeology generally, but particularly in, in the areas I work in. So he was Professor of European Archaeology at Oxford University from the 70s to the, to the noughties. But he's worked at some of the most seminal sites in the country. Danebury, um, which Richard mentioned in the interview there, is, is one of his biggest. But three other sites particularly where I've worked at each one of them <laughs> Barry's been there first and we're kind of following in his footsteps so Hengisbury Head which is a massively important later prehistoric fort uh, near to Bournemouth Fishbourne Roman Palace he's excavated there and the Roman Baths in Bath so Barry's Barry Cunliffe's name is on almost everything I do in the UK <laughs> he's, he's inescapable <laughs> but he also he literally wrote the book on the Iron Age Iron Age communities in Britain which is up to its fourth edition and I teach about units <laughs> so, oh. so he's, he's every Everywhere in my life. So Richard will have learned a ton of of it. Massively. For working for 10 years for him. Hugely, yeah. Mm. Must have inspired him massively in Mm. that early stage of his career. What a good good person to have have worked for. So he then went on to become a archaeological promotion officer uh, out near Bristol, was it? I think. um... So some sort of social media thing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it, doesn't it? I I guess an early doors community archaeologist working on a heritage lottery funded project yeah so getting the message out there again quite early on following on from his teacher's footsteps always like inspiring hard to reach audiences mm. and new, new generations engaging people in their own heritage which again is just so important yeah, it's interesting that he kind of goes from that that position of being inspired to being the inspirer and again it harking back to archaeologist of the year i suppose that's how you get such yeah athletes. yeah and we'll hear about operation nightingale coming up in the next section and again the, the role that he's played in inspiring other people and to, to engage with the subject is just it's just brilliant so. i mean that's certainly one of the things i i kind of most associate uh, richard osgood with so should we have a listen to that yeah so more more recently i guess you're whilst you're obviously you're involved in managing and overseeing the the history the history and the archaeology and the monuments on mod land You've been working on a project called Project Nightingale. Yeah, Operation Nightingale. We started this in 2011. I think, you know, um, I, don't, I, I defy anyone to, to get through being in an operational theatre without it leaving some mark on you, kind of either physical or, or emotional. I know that, you know, the story I always tell about my, my dad in the last week of his life was getting flashbacks to Normandy and, you know, his part mm. in that. And, you know, he was that classic British officer of never never speaking about the war and he's apart from a couple of funny stories and it's it's one of those things that people bottle up feelings and then maybe the body just lets go of them and I, I just imagine that's probably um, a massive influence in, in anyone's life who's who's been in an operational theatre. I mean, we're doing this Beatrice Ducardi lecture, and of yeah. course she was, she was the secretary for Mortimer Wheeler mm-hmm. and Wheeler famously has a big First and Second World War narrative. He was he wins a military cross as a gunner in the First World War, um, assaulting this position called the Butte de Valencourt, which is on the Somme region. Right. It's a burial mound, it's a prehistoric burial mound. So wow. you've got this, and I just wonder with some of Wheeler's, you know, life stories, whether whether his military history had influenced some of him, you know, how his behaviours in many ways. So I think that there's a, there are these links between the military and archaeologists that go back forever, and some of our big names, people like Pitt Rivers, have a military link. In 2011, we had a, a call from a medical sergeant to say that one of his guys was in quite a bad way. He was um, suffering post-traumatic stress as a result of being hit by a mortar wow. in Afghanistan. His military career was 
as a result, over. Wow. And he had suicidal thoughts. He's been on, been on telly, <laughs> been on time to him, in fact, talking okay. about this, so okay. not breaking any confidences. And the thing that kept him going actually was watching Time Team. Okay. I love watching it. Yeah. He used to claim it was Phil Harding in his shorts, but I'm not sure that's the case. <laughs> um, so, but that, so, show, that show's had a massive impact yeah. on so many people. But, and I mean, so yeah. since then, we've had, um, we've had about 250 people through the programme doing archaeology as part of their recovery. And not all of them have, have been necessarily traumatised in the broadest sense. Um, certainly not by the project, I hope. But, uh, <laughs> they've, uh, they've, they've come through and we've had now, um, I mean, just we were chatting you earlier about a couple of the guys got their degrees from Winchester University uh, yeah, in archaeology. Course, yeah. And these are um, ex-infantrymen who've uh, now got an archaeology qualification. Others have got, uh, one, one, one particular guy's got a first in archaeology, which is something I, to my shame, I haven't yeah, got myself. Yeah. So he's got, I've, I've got a Desmond. They've got honourable sportsmen. So he's got um, his first class honours degree in archaeology. Others work in um, field archaeology work for professional companies and others you know got a Facebook group that they'll insult each other and just have have fun <laughs> as a little kind of community and family which is great mm, mm. Um, and you start off with the the idea of do no harm both to the archaeology because it's all well and good working with 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 vets and wounded people but I don't want to just make archaeology things for them to do and if they do bad bad field work then probably not what you should be doing yeah. so we need to have the, the the partnership of groups like the CBA mm -hmm. or with the 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 national parks or with the, the, the field units so they can um, lend their expertise and their charitable status to, to assist us with our archaeological programs with these guys and um, yeah for the most part it's great and they, it, what I love what I really really love is that that thrill that they've got when they're they're finding stuff and discovering stuff and they're so so concentrated in their in their endeavors that they're just in a different place to maybe the otherwise were yeah the story I always absolutely. give is uh, one of the one of the guys he, he was doing this bit of field work. He was digging away on um, a Anglo-Saxon burial, sixth century burial with some quite nice grave goods with it. Had a drinking bucket in the end. In fact, best preserved sixth century drinking vessel in Britain. Nice. Go see it in um, the Wiltshire Heritage Museum in Devizes. So he's, he's digging away um, and he's, he's found this sixth century drinking vessel, the best preserved one in Britain. Go and see it in the, uh, in the Wiltshire Heritage Museum in Devizes. Beautiful thing. And I asked him, aren't you getting bored digging the skeleton? He'd been doing it for a few days, right. now, about, about three, four days. And he said no, because he's concentrating so hard not to mess up that he's now sleeping correctly at night, getting a good wow. night's sleep. Um, he found this wonderful set of finds with this uh, male burial, which are now in a museum. And he said, it's strange from my perspective, because he's an infantryman who'd fought for his country. But he said, I'm able now to give something back to my country. And, and, and I can take my family there and say, I found it. And there's now a picture of him finding this thing with his name on it, Rifleman Rowan Kendrick, 5th Battalion, the Rifles, photograph of this find and the bucket in the British Museum wow. next to the Sutton New Helmet. And you think, you know what? I am never going to get that in my <laughs> yeah. career. But, you know, what a wonderful story for him. Yeah. And now this guy is now a professional archaeologist. And just a few of those stories, it makes you think, there's that undergraduate question about why do archaeology? What is the point in archaeology? Mm -hmm. You know, Maybe we've struggled to answer that clearly. I think there's something for everything, for anyone in archaeology. Yeah, you know, for, for younger people, for, for older audience, there is something for everybody in archaeology. Just, you've got to find that thing that really makes you have that buzz. And for some of these, these military veterans, some of them don't want to dig, some of them want to do the logistics, some of them want to do the chefing, some want to do mapping. Um, but there's a job for everyone. And you know, it's, it's an engaging thing to do, archaeology, I would say that. But, but yeah, it is, it is. So you mentioned you giving the Ducati talk for yeah. the Council of British Archaeology. That's a, that's a real thrill. I looked, yeah. when, when I was asked, I mean, it was uh, one of these just lovely moments to get the email from uh, from, from Mike at CBA, because I, I did that thing of looking through about who'd done it before. It's a bit daunting in some ways, because <laughs> I saw actually Barry Cunliffe had done it before. But Michael Wood, and Michael Wood's one of my, my all-time heroes. When I was a kid, I remember that 
watching um, In Search of the Dark Ages. That was the series that I. Yeah, that's my, that's yeah, yeah. my Michael Wood series. Like, everyone has their own Doctor Who. My, my <laughs> Michael Wood series is the In Search of the Dark Ages, and in particular, the Athelstan and the, uh, the Eric Bloodaxe episodes. I remember actually having, I actually had never had a day off school. My mum would never let me have a day off school <laughs> for anything. The one day I did get off school, I managed to watch In Search of the Dark Ages, uh, the, the Eric Bloodaxe thing, and I taped, you know, maybe a tape player and oh, recording yeah, yeah, it so I could listen to good, the tape good. afterwards. Did you do the thing where you stop anyone recording over yeah, it? Yeah, 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 take yeah, the little yeah, tabs yeah, out. Tab so I, yeah. so <laughs> I did all that, and uh, and that was one of those moments. So I, I've still got the, the Michael Wood book, um, and it just is a brilliant thing, and we're, we're talking in Alfred's Alfred City of Winchester now, and that, that area of Anglo-Saxon Britain was, yeah, well, England, yeah. frankly. Mm. I mean, it was a, it's a fascinating, fascinating, um, Era to be, and I only studied it vaguely. I'm a, used to be a prehistorian. I did yeah. much more First World War now, but used to be a prehistorian. But nonetheless, that that Saxon era and those 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 names that are actually they're actually written down that you can see written down or pictures of them. Athelstan yeah. Alfred, yeah, there's something about it, isn't there? Yeah, um, definitely. And he was brilliant. So know that he's done it. That's quite daunting, but I'm really looking forward to doing it. Really so people can book tickets to come and see. This. Yeah, apparently so. Um, so come and hear me talk about I will talk a lot about the Operation Nightingale program because I've just done so much with it in the last few years it's probably the, the real focus of my archaeological mm -hmm. attention so definitely talk a lot about that looks like it's going to be a, a wonderful day because there is this chance to go to the Mithraeum in London the Bloomberg mm -hmm. which uh, by all accounts incredible I got to go there a year or so ago okay a proper experiential experience like so, sounds and what a brilliant piece of work smells and visual yeah, really good really good yeah yeah, great. Should be a great day. So I think it, I think it'll be a really good day. So yeah, encourage as many people as possible to go to go to that day and uh, come and say hello to me afterwards. Excellent, excellent. And there's the, there's an award ceremony for the um, the Marsh Archaeology Marshals, Awards. Yeah, so that that'll yeah. be really good. And mm. uh, it's always always nice to, to to be able to present recognition for people who've done really really yeah, good things absolutely. in the year. And um, yeah, so that's another another uh, highlight of the year. I think. Good absolutely. To and I guess what people don't, what you haven't mentioned as well, is that you're currently archaeologist of the year. Don't, don't. <laughs> I've had so much stick. Some of the soldiers even made me up um, a little baseball cap, you know, in a full Donald Trump style, <laughs> nice. with archaeologist of the year on it. In case you don't already know, really nice. So I've been trying to get loads of other people to wear. It. I'm trying to get celebrities to wear it, take photographs of them, so uh, we can we can see, we can share the love on that one. But no, that that was great, and I'm under no illusions that that was entirely for the the work of these these veterans on Not Nightingale. Um, because we put collectively lots of articles into current archaeology because the guys have done really good work and done some really interesting sites. I mean, really eclectic from prisoner burials in the south coast of England to the, 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 the camp used by Easy Company, Band of Brothers, to yeah, a Saxon burial yeah, yeah, site, yeah, yeah. to all sorts of really, really engaging sites. Uh, one thing I have thought with Op Nightingale is we've got to get, got to find stuff. Yeah. I mean, maybe you and I, I don't know about you, but maybe you and I would just about tolerate digging a late Bronze Age ditch with nothing in it. Mm. You know, yeah, you yeah, can justify yeah. architecturally, yeah, yeah, it's quite yeah, interesting, yeah. you get yeah. bits about But for a load of bored soldiers, nah, it's, it's not going to work. I'm a bored squaddy, I found out, is a really dangerous <laughs> Sounds thing. Sounds like undergraduate students. <laughs> it's a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to work out things for people to do and, mm -hmm. and, and to find and have that discovery moment. So um, we've, we've done some really interesting projects and that, that's that's why we, you know, we got collectively that acknowledgement. Yeah, it was, but it was a good day, really nice, nice day. And that's, that's another good conference. Oh, congratulations Thank on that. You. Thank you. So we thought we'd break it up again, just because there's so many juicy bits to pull out of that last. Yeah, it's it's, so. it's, uh, it's there's so much in this interview to reflect on. Yeah. It's, it's hard to just let it roll it's on. It's such and a on good first interview, and I think it, it it's warrants a uh, slightly different 
approach to the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, going back to the, the start of that second part, the, the relationship between the military and archaeology is something I, I'm quite taken by, and you do see that a lot in the textbooks, in the history of our discipline, and even the techniques we use, the mapping techniques, the geospatial survey techniques, drone techniques now, they all share certain traits with military practices. And and development. I, I mean, the foundations of modern archaeological recording and stratigraphy go back to pit rivers yeah, and, yeah. and military techniques generally so it, it's a huge part of our own heritage yeah absolutely huge. there was there was a lot there was a lot said there about operation nightingale and there was there's one comment that struck me the, the giving something back element of you can serve your country and i mean we should point out we're recording this podcast on remembrance day uh so the idea of of serving one's country but not feeling that you're giving something back until you find an artifact that goes in a museum. Mm. It's, it's, it's an incredible aspect of our discipline, I think, yeah. and about archaeology and heritage generally. And, and the importance of, of heritage in people's lives, but also the, the style of the work and the, the impact that can have on mental health mm. and um, sort of the taking care to, to dig and to record and to excavate and the kind of zen feeling that comes yeah. from that it seems to help in a, in a huge way and that's massively significant it's I an think. amazing project really and we should say there's tons of material online so all our listeners should give it a good google um there's also i think on youtube there's the time team episode and the soldier that richard mentions there is, is interviewed and it's just, it's a really interesting and engaging and slightly different approach to archaeology and, and I, I recommend everyone having a good research into it. I guess as well when when you've served, when you've been in the military, life must seem quite fleeting but then to have something so permanent as, a, as an exhibition in a museum that is something that's been in the ground for yeah. thousands of years, yeah. to get that sense of permanence it just must be an incredible feeling. Yeah, fantastic project. And as, as we said in the interview, if anyone wants to hear more, then pop along to that, that lecture in a couple of weeks' time. Absolutely. And I, and I noticed you mentioned um, uh, videotapes and, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and recording, <laughs> recording TV shows. <laughs> a bit nerdy. And it just occurred to me that one day a future archaeologist is going to excavate some small plastic tabs and see them as remnants of some great past <laughs> civilization. But really it's just people didn't want their historic TV being taped over. <laughs> <laughs> After they'd had the day off, off school. <laughs> anyway, should we finish finish this interview off? I'm excited. Yeah, let's finish it up. Right, so we're back. I should say we've just moved inside because um, it was raining and um, <laughs> we we're getting a bit. The, down. the weather's against us, so we yeah. had to now. Um, Join, join alongside the taxidermy in the, in the pub. And, uh, actually, we're fairly free of it here. We've got bobbins, haven't we? Bobbins. Uh, is that some sort of hamster cage? I, I dread to think. I don't know what's... what's <laughs> just don't look too carefully. It's a very large bottle of whiskey. It's an eccentric... Yes. Yeah, eccentric collection. That looks like kind of... Actually, there's some quite nice old bottles up here. Do you recognise? I've done a lot of First World War art. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, a lot of these of bottles... Of yeah, some of these. Um, some of those are kind of water and cordial bottles. That's a lion sort of thing. And you, you do find these in... in, in 
trenches, a lot of these things, those so they're the kind of rounder bottles, you find them in the, the detritus left behind by soldiers and cleared off at the end of the war. So these are sorts of things, actually, I'm trying to get a little typology together, look for medicine ones and, yeah, so anyway, anyway back to the conversation. <laughs> so we're on to the second half of the, uh, the chat now, we have three set questions that we'd like to ask to our, part, our participants. Okay. Um, and the first one, is there a piece of work over all these years that you've been working in a number of different places that you're particularly proud of? Something the output. And, oh, oh that's, really, that's interesting. Uh, can I have two? It'd be really, really good. So the, 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 first, the first one is about to happen, and that's going to be at the end of this year, the publication for Baraclan is going to come out. Okay. So it's a combination with Historic England, Wessex Archaeology, and Op Nightingale, the, the years and years and years of work going in there. And the, what I love in there is a chapter written by the soldiers. So okay. these are guys that are not used to doing any academic writing, but they've written a chapter on their experiences and oh, cannot amazing. wait to see that out in print. That, that sounds lovely. great. And, and Wessex has done their usual beautiful work of illustrating and writing up. So, so that, that, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. It's really exciting. Prior to that, it's a bit of First World War archaeology, actually, that we did um, back in 2008 with a friend, Martin Brown. And we found the body of an Australian soldier on the Western Front, a place called Messines, near uh, near Ypres. And he was killed in 1917. We found his remains still with all his equipment on him. And it took us collectively as a group two years, but eventually they found a name for this guy. Wow. And it's a chap called Private Alan James Mather, who was killed at the age of 37 in his first action at Messines. He now has a war grave with his name on it, um, and his family has got the chance to go and see his funeral, which was. That's that's kind of I suppose the archaeology that I've done that's meant most to the yeah the most direct impact so, yeah, yeah so that I, I was I, you know thrilled with that that they are now my, that family is now a group of friends of mine and they're kind of an Australian family of mine which is which is really lovely so that's, that's incredible that's something I will always look back on and that that moment when I had the email from the Australian military to say we've got a match for the DNA mm -hmm. it matches the isotopes he's the right age he's the right height he's the right battalion. Is it him? And palpably, is that Venn diagram? Is the right middle? It has to be. It's yeah. The chances of it not being as infinitesimally small. But there was a JPEG at the bottom. Mm -hmm. and you click the JPEG and you got a face. Oh wow! And I've known this individual as a skeleton for two right. years. Mm-hmm. And now he's a person again. That's, and that's that's, that's a really phenomenal feeling. So was was that part of a larger project that was taking place? Yeah. This was this was this was a, a program we called the Plug Street Project that we we worked for. Uh, I can't remember what it was now. It was about about seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. Just all a group of like-minded volunteers doing first world archaeology, and I'm I've, I've now shifted my attention from Plug Street over in, into France, and we're working at Bullecourt, particularly looking for the the remains of the tanks that mm -hmm. went in in 1970 with with the wounded veterans and not like together. There's loads of stuff on the on the internet. You can you can chase this stuff up. All Excellent. the reports actually, the digs are all downloadable as PDFs that's online, so you can you can see these things. And that that's phenomenal. We found um, you know, it's a big battlefield. We gave small area of permission from the French, mm -hmm. but we found bits of the track with the original paint on it. We found a, a shell that was made on. Was, let's say the first of April, nineteen seventeen, and fired on the eleventh of April. So it tells you the whole logistics train, and it's you know we think we know all about the First World War, but archaeology can even tell us That's, greater yeah. little little vignettes. It's not going to change our whole understanding necessarily, yeah. but human stories, and that's, that's what archaeology yeah, is all about. Absolutely, and I, I I love a broad picture. I love a landscape, but it's that unique human aspect that absolutely. comes in, and that personal story that yeah. really makes absolutely it special. That. So uh, yeah, great choice. Good, thank you. So thanks for letting me have two on that one. It's very greedy, very greedy. That's greedy. right, you, you, you didn't go on too much. Good. <laughs> Next one is, is there a bit of work that you've seen take place elsewhere that you thought that's brilliant? We tend to call it the, the bit of what you're jealous of. But jealousy oh, God, I can be jealous one. of so many things. I mean, I, I've been following a bit on Pocklington today. 
um, online. I saw Alice Roberts was tweeting some stuff about Pocklington and the chariot, the Iron Age chariot okay. going up in the north in, okay. uh, in North Yorkshire, which is just stunning. But I think the thing I would have to go for would be Must Farm. Must Farm. M must yeah. Farm. I used to, as I said, I used to do prehistoric stuff. I used to do later Bronze Age stuff, and this site is just so well excavated using lots of innovative techniques and technologies. They're studying everything beautifully. They're releasing stuff as well, so you're getting eclectic studies that are coming out um, to keep the interest going and beautiful photographs. It's just, a, I think it's an example of how you, how you can do archaeology. Yeah, so that's a really lovely. fine piece of work, Must Farm. Yeah, bronze Age, little Bronze Age settlement, isn't it? Bronze yeah. Age settlement that burnt down, you've got um, um, log, log boats nearby which are decorated, you've got food stuff still in the pot. So they're describing it as um, Britain's prehistoric Pompeii. But yeah. I think what they should do is say it's Britain's prehistoric... Must farm. Must farm. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's a site that we should be referring to with huge pride yeah. and, and excitement mm -hmm. that we have our own archaeology, which is different to the classical world, mm -hmm. but nonetheless really rewarding. Really and they, did it, they did it so well, I yeah. cannot wait to see the publication or what they're going to do with museums and, and display. I just, I don't know. I right They're such an imaginative bunch, so it'll be great. Yeah, am I right in thinking that was led by another, a fellow archaeologist of the year? Mark, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah um, but yeah, he, I mean, he fully deserved his. His was, uh, his was um, just a brilliant piece of work, and a yeah, very, very good archaeologist. Mm. And so that, I think I'd have to pick Mossman. Fair enough, good choice, good choice. Okay, so we got the final question of the the podcast is looks at um, something that Derek and I have created. So we've actually got a working, uh, fully working time machine. Took a little while to get together. Well done. Uh, we've got the well patents through. So yeah. that's now my best uh, discovery of the uh, <laughs> number two. That's a brilliant thing. Well done. Um, but all participants on the podcast get a free return ticket. Wow. Um, so it's quite an exclusive uh, club. But um, you, it, it's temporal and spatial, so you can go wherever and whenever you want, and yeah. time's all relative. So you'll leave. <laughs> time's all relative. <laughs> we'll shoot down the alien spaceship in a minute. Be fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you can go wherever and whenever you want, and it's, it's spatial and temporal, so you can go, it, it's easy to move around, so don't be worried about restrictions, and as, as soon as you leave, you come back, so you okay, can spend I, as long as you and want. I, am I invisible? I'm not allowed to influence You're anything. No influence. I can't, oh, yeah, can't, yeah, can't, go, can't go, go back and influence various votes or anything, no, well, <laughs> or whatever. Or, uh, yeah, okay. um, I like that idea. Now, we had someone trying to warn Harold about uh, uh, Harold, don't look up. But, <laughs> That's no, a great one. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so, so moments in the past that I can go back and witness and then talk knowledgeably about yeah, when well I go that's back. A, and, and so we've had people like Colin Richards who said, actually, I don't want the ticket because one of my favourite things is guessing or trying to come up with what, um, yeah, having informed oh, that's a really, that's, oh yeah, I can see why you told me, you know, it's a good thing not to have listened to them because that's a great answer. Because <laughs> um, I guess you get a lot of people saying, I'd like to go back to Stonehenge and yes, see it in action. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that, that, that would be a truly, truly astonishing thing to do. I don't know. I'd like. I'd like to be there when the first person made bronze. Okay. When you Derek will love that. When, when somebody has just <laughs> done. Well, somebody's engaged in alchemy. Yeah. They've literally got a couple of rocks, <laughs> chucked them together, yeah. heated up, and this this stuff has come out, and it's shiny and glinty, and like that moment of feeling like a god, frankly, yeah. is that you have made this stuff. Yeah. So first person. So are you talking about the first ever person, or are you thinking someone's come over from No, first person somewhere? to make it. First ever, okay, yeah. The, the, the technologist part. Oh, okay. I like innovators, people, people who find stuff or invent things. I think that's an incredible thing. I mean, like, some of them it's quite stupid. I mean, the first person to lick a cane toad, finding out it's hallucinogenic, I mean, it's an innovator. <laughs> How many people died trying weird things before? Yeah, but actually, that, that, that first person to, to just change 
human, human, yeah. human progress and history because mm. that's what it did. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that 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 person that came up with with bronze and that would fit in with the kind of me X being a prehistorian, I guess, as well, and looking at Bronze Age. But the first person, whoever it is around the world, wherever, yeah. to make that stone into metal discovery. I, I quite like the idea of going to the first person that knew how to make it and then selling that idea to someone yeah. and going, hey, look at this. Ooh. Do you know, it's, it's a, yeah, kind of snake oil salesman thing. There's got to yeah. be a trick here. Yeah, Any yeah. minute they're going to find out. Yeah. But nonetheless, I like the shiny product at the end. Um, yeah, no, I think it's, I, I, that's the sort of thing. I, I'd like to see that. If, it could do, if I could do that. Otherwise, no, the idea of not going back is also applicable. As you know, you get asked, what time would you like to live in? And it's always now, isn't it? Yeah. Because oh, yeah, yeah. modern dentistry and medicine and a life expectancy, <laughs> which is kind of above the one I'm at at the moment, really, is a, is a, is a good thing. I'd probably be dead at this point in prehistory. Yeah, so, point. yeah, living living beyond that would be a, would be a good thing. Yeah. Okay, so those, those are my answers. I'm allowed two for the first one, am I? Yeah. And then these other two are okay. That's brilliant. That's cool. great. Richard, good. thank you so much for your no, time. It's a pleasure. Today. Really engaging. Thank um, you. We look forward to hearing, um, we'll be there at the Ducati lecture, so we look forward to hearing what, you, what you've got to say. Excellent. Yeah, that should be a really good day, and I, I'm really looking forward to seeing who has won these awards. Yeah, very much so. And we, 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 for, for the next episode we've got, we're going to be interviewing some of those award Oh, uh, brilliant. So, um, yeah, Good. Oh, well, I'll, I will definitely be tuning into that. Yeah, excellent. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lawrence. Thank you. Welcome to Career in Ruins, where Lawrence can't find a quiet corner for an interview. <laughs> <laughs> the foibles of going to the pub for an interview. Oh, it, it comes with such positives, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the two or three sliders we'd had up until that point meant that the conversation flowed, whether someone was uh, having a chat in the background. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the pub-based ambience anyway. I think it adds character to the story. Oh, what some great answers there. Really. Yeah, really good. I, I particularly love his... his um, work with the Australian servicemen and it's just such a fantastic combination of science and the use of DNA yeah, yeah. Um, excavation and documentary research it's the, the perfect coming together of all these disciplines to, to repatriate this individual. It's really interesting as well, and that convergence of working with veterans and repatriating uh, service people of the past. Mm. It's, it's, you can, the, the connections are so tangible there. It's really interesting yeah. to see. And, and I, for one, can't wait to see his talk uh, next week. That's it. It must have been, <laughs> it must be so rewarding. And he mentioned about clicking on the JPEG and seeing the face of this individual for the first time. Yeah. Got to, no. That'll set your hairs on your back. Yeah, How I'm many sure. archaeologists get to actually see the face of a person mm, excavating? Yeah. It's, it's, it's so rewarding. And again, with his link with the Operation Nightingale Service, yeah. just brilliant. Um, and again, uh, much like other people, he talks about Must Farm being yeah, a yeah. Pro project that he's uh, envious of. I would love to see that being excavated. Yeah, yeah. Again, as we always say, worth going to have a look at the work, the stuff online. Yes, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, there's, there's very a lot of information out there. Time machine, no. <laughs> I, mean, I know this is the first time you've listened to that bit. And I, <laughs> I thought, oh, I'd be there with him. I think I, what I think to see that first discovery, and it's one of those great questions, isn't it? That how how did a human being take a, a potentially a green powdery rock mm -hmm. and? turn it into this metal it's a ludicrous thing to even attempt to do where where was this where's the earliest evidence oh, the earliest at present if my memory 
<laughs> if my memory works, is, um, is in Serbia, a site called Vela Voda, um, okay. from around about 5000 BC or okay. thereabouts. Uh, and there's some evidence for metallurgical slag and some evidence um, of copper ore exploitation. But interestingly, that site, the, the use of ore, seems to extend beyond the use of metals. So potentially using it as a pigment as far back as the Neolithic. Oh, wow. Um, so maybe that discovery came out of another process or another craft. A byproduct. Yeah, so you never know. It could be could be one just just happened to happen. But again, <laughs> imagine sticking a pigment into a half to alter its colour a little bit and it comes out as a shiny metal. <laughs> Your mind would be blown. <laughs> Uh, I, I, look at I would love to see that. It reminded me, have you ever seen the Mitchell and Webb sketch? Yeah. Uh, the bronze, bronze, bronze orientation. Bronze orientation day. Yeah. I love it. I use it in class. It's so good. <laughs> For those that haven't seen it, they, they've got a guy coming in to t- talking through the uh, the new wave of new technology that's coming through that is bronze. <laughs> and uh, there's one chap there who's a binder. He's like, well, what yeah. about me? It's like, you'll be fine. There's plenty of jobs for binders. You'll be binding the the, the bronze objects to the, uh, to the objects. Oh, fantastic. What about me? I'm a nap. You're redundant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's the first time I think I've definitely thought about jumping in the time machine as well. <laughs> I think we've got a meeting. You're not allowed to go. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Darn>. <laughs> no. oh, but a great chat and what a great guy. I I can't wait to meet him next week. That's I'm really it. looking forward to it. Yeah, and uh, as I'm aware, there's still tickets on sale, so people should check out the Council of British Archaeology. Do website. yeah, come along, meet yeah. us. Yeah, come and have guys. a chat to us. Yeah. If you want a pin badge, we've got plenty to go. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you say, in a couple of weeks we'll be going to the Day of Archaeology with the Council for British Archaeology um, and covering that, and that, that episode will come out. But then we're back to normal after that, so we've already bagged a few great interviews with some really good professionals. Who have we got coming up, Lawrence? Uh, we've got Sarah Perry, Excellent. We've got, who, from, who up until last week was of York University, or University of York, and now gone to MOLA. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got Mark Bowden of Historic England. Fantastic. And we also have Adam, Adam Stanford, oh. um, who works currently a director of Sumo, but um, formerly of Aerial Cam, so specialist in remote sensing with drones and pole cams and things like oh, that. Oh, and, and so much more. But um, we'll be back to our new normal format in two or three weeks' time. So we need input from our listeners we need monutrumps we do so again for those of you that are new to the podcast we, we play a game called monutrumps and it's a bit like top trump yeah yeah it's about using archaeological archaeological sites both known and unknown and basically trying to outdo each other that's but it. it's much more fun when you suggest the sites that's it and it's meant it's meant to be about underappreciated sites so yeah. Um, for example, one of the um, scores is the distance from Stonehenge, because Stonehenge is the most looked at site, at least in Britain. So we want to know sites that are equivalent, equivalent in uh, interest and accessibility, and, and, but slightly overlooked or underappreciated. Yeah, so tell us about th- sites that you love, and we'll try and get them into Monu Trumps. That's it. So please ping them into our Twitter account, ping them into our Facebook page, Check us out on Instagram. Otherwise, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you soon. Derek, did I tell you this episode was brought to you by the Council of British Archaeology? The Council for British Archaeology. You can find out more information about them at archaeologyuk.org or follow them on social media at archaeologyuk.org.